if we are honest and the full story was to be told, we would have to admit that we are most often all of us, all of us, more so than we recognize, slow to serve. We are, every one of us, more than we recognize, slow to serve. Just think with me, go back, go back in your memory to this past holiday celebration, the season that we just experienced, you know, Thanksgiving, Christmas, November, December. Just, just think back, okay? Here's the scene. I know it's not exact for all of us, but just generally speaking, just here's the picture that's painted. Surely you can identify with something of this image that I'm about to paint for you. So, uh, the meal has been enjoyed, the bellies are filled, conversation is flowing. It's great, it's wonderful, everyone's gathered there. So too are the dishes. They are piled, they are about to fall over. The, uh, the dishes need to be clean, the kitchen needs to be clean, the trash needs to be emptied, and everyone at that table, well, no one's saying it because no one's that rude, but everyone is thinking to themselves, they need to do it. They need to do it. This party is thinking that party needs to do it. That party is thinking the third party needs to do it. The third party is thinking the fourth party needs to do it. And you're sitting there, weighing all this, wondering, what should I do? And the dog goes to the door, and you say, that's my out. It's time to take the dog out. This is all purely hypothetical, mind you. I am not impressed or, or struggling with this in any way myself, of course. Again, if we're honest, if we're honest, every one of us, to some degree or another, struggles with this idea of serving. And this is true not just in the home, and this is true not just in our schools, and this is true not just in our workplaces, but it's true in the church as well. It's true everywhere, in every arena, wherever we as human beings go, we struggle with this idea, with this concept of our stooping, with our serving. Um, We might do it, perhaps. We might find ourselves just either being dragged to or maybe even dragging ourselves, but oftentimes that's more out of duty or obligation or habit. This is what I do with no heart, with no heart in it whatsoever. Well, what would Jesus have to say to us in the midst of this struggle? He says some profound things to us in the midst of this struggle. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. Uh, That is the first book of the New Testament, first of the four Gospels that we have been blessed to have, uh, these historical records of Jesus' life and ministry, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We're in Matthew, Matthew chapter 20, picking up where we left off last week. Last week, you may remember if you were here, verses 17 through 19, Today, we're picking up right after that. The context of that's important. I'll get to that in a little bit. But Matthew 20, verse 20, moving on through verse 28. It's not a long passage, but man, is there a lot of freight here and much for us to consider this morning. Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 20, reading on through verse 28. Hear now God's word. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. 
Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, let's pray for a moment. Father, thank you. Thank you for, again, these Gospels. Uh, Thank you for uh, inspiring them to be written in the miraculous uh, thing that it is to know, as as we find here, that as you have made clear here, that no more, no less than what you wanted to be written is exactly what is recorded. Uh, So truly we have the breathed out word of, of God put down, uh, written down, and preserved all these many, many years, again, because of your love for your people. And uh, we need to hear this. Uh, every one of us, in some way, shape, or form, need to hear this this morning. It's clearly why we're here, uh, because you want us to hear this. And so we ask that you would help us to do that. We, um, if this was easy, we wouldn't need your help to hear Uh, If what Jesus, your son, was communicating, uh, if all that came natural, uh, you wouldn't even need to have bothered to have said it. Uh, Clearly, there are some things here that are going to go right up against the grain of how we think and live. Uh, There are some profound things that touch down into the depths of our heart, uh, into the things that uh, we deem to be vital and important and worthwhile to pursue, and we really need your help. More than we know even to ask for your help, we need your help this morning. And so we pray for your mercy. We ask that you'd be our teacher um, for the mind and the heart, that we would be changed. We pray in your name. Amen. I'll read you a quote well worth your considering from Yale historian Yaroslav Pelikan. All right? Uh, this is what he, he wrote. So it's very, very astute, this observation that, that uh, he made. Regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible, with some sort of supermagnet, to pull up out of history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? It's an interesting image. You know what the answer to that question is? Precious little, if anything, would be left. Really, when you take a look at Western history in particular. Um, just, just bear with me for a moment. I'm going to give you six things. Six areas of, of impact, just at a societal, cultural level, left by Jesus. Okay, just quickly, these these six things. One, education. 
I mean, you may know that the, the great schools of the West began. They were formed because of a desire to love the Lord our God with the mind. Education. Children. Jesus was revolutionary in his regarding young ones as actually being persons and being of value. This was new. And because of that, in time, the early church formed what we know today as orphanages and the concept, the tradition of God-parenting. Humanitarian uh, relief. Um, the ancient world, it was normal to exclude the ones uh, deemed to be extraneous, deemed to be this or deemed to be that. Not so from the earliest days of the church, brought in, welcomed, cared for from the very beginning. Compassion. Compassion. Jesus and his regard for the suffering is what led to what we know today as hospitals. The, uh, the idea of, of, a, of a charitable, voluntary institution to care for those who cannot care for themselves. That's where that movement begins. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Um, the ethos, again, in the ancient world, and it's, it's that because of what's natural to the human heart, is that you, you take care of your friends and you crush your enemies. And Jesus comes in and says, of the virtue is not that. The virtue is forgiveness. And lastly, humility. Humility. The ancients certainly regarded wisdom and courage as being virtues, but not humility. Not in any way at all was that deemed to be a virtue. That was on a different list. And yet Jesus comes as the God who stoops and the God who condescends to serve. Those six things transformed the impact. Just I'm, I'm only speaking at a societal, cultural level of the impact that Jesus left by his coming and then the movement that that begins, which brings us to our text, especially bridging off of, jumping off of that last one, humility. Last week, we were, again, verses 17 through 19, Jesus is the third of the four of his foretelling of his crucifixion. You may remember we talked just a little bit about that. That leads us into, and just the way Matthew says it there in the first word of this text, then, you know, comes right after that. This is the context of, of uh, this, this dialogue that takes place. Well, actually, we'll say it's first a request that is made of Jesus, then a dialogue that takes place between Jesus and the people there, and then, then comes this command that he gives. In this passage, what we're seeing is not just, not just the reality that he has uh, come to die. He's telling us not just what it is that he has come to do. Now he's telling us why he's come to do it. You see, he recognizes his death, his crucifixion, as not just being a tragic injustice. Jesus sees it as a vicarious sacrifice. That's how he regards his own death, that is, that at that point in history was yet to come. Not as just a, a tragic injustice, but as a vicarious sacrifice. Well, when we understand that, that demands a response. Not just what he'd come to do, but why he came to do it. You can't hear that 
without understanding that that demands a response. Or just to put it another way, Jesus walked the path of service. Jesus walked the path of service. That's what took him to the cross. As his followers, so too must we. It's very plain. It's just a, a, it's the emphasis of the passage. There's a lot more there to be sure, but the emphasis of this text is this. Jesus walked this path of service as his followers, so too must we. Now, what would that mean? What shape would such a life take? What does it mean to walk and follow him in this way? Three things. It's there in your outline. First, understanding that this stands in utter contrast to the world, and we need to drill down on that. This stands in utter contrast to the world. Secondly, that this is a life that is lived, expended for the sake of others. You might say that's the direction that such a life would take. But the fuel, what energizes, what motivates that is the third thing. It is all because of Jesus. So these three things, the service. The service is, such a life is to be lived in utter contrast to the world, lived for the sake of others, and all because of Jesus. Those three things. Let's look at these uh, one at a time, in turn. In first thing, this is a life that is to be lived in utter contrast to the world. It, just, it stands out uh, as markedly different. Jesus makes this clear statement. You, can't, you had to have been asleep when we read this a few minutes ago if you, to, to not grasp this. He says it so clearly. Verses 25 and 26, how this stands out. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And immediately, Jesus is speaking this to Jewish men. He means for them to understand a contrast is coming. He said, this is how the Gentiles do it. Ah, but mm, here's where I'm going. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. This is not so much a criticism as it is a reminder, an observation that Jesus is giving. This is just the way it is. This is the way the world works. The followers of leaders in every arena that you can think of, the followers of leaders tend to end up carrying out the whims of the leaders. That's just the way the world works, and Jesus is pointing towards that. And he is saying... He cannot say it any more clearly than he does. Not so with you. That is not the way it is to be in my kingdom with my people. You are not to be living and chasing after status and standing or jockeying for position in the organizational chart. Not so with you in utter contrast to the rest of the world. Now, you may be wondering, well, why does he feel the need to say that? Well, you notice that's midway in the text, right? There's a lot that has just been said in an exchange and a conversation. The reason he says what he says is because he has to say it to the people there who've come to him and made this request, which, by the way, is nothing but a reflection of our own hearts. It's nothing more, nothing less than a reflection of what's going on in our own hearts. Let's look at it again, starting back in verse 20. 
Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine, the idea being that they're, you know, the three of them are there together. Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you, the you here is plural, by the way. So he's addressing not just her, but the three of them. You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm to drink? He's clearly addressing the two sons. They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the 10, so this is two of the disciples, when the other 10 doing the math, when the 10 heard about it, they were indignant at the two brothers. What in the world is going on here? All right, you have this mother and her two sons. We know by looking at the other, other gospel passages and interweaving all this together, it's highly likely that this woman standing before Jesus, well, kneeling before Jesus, her name is Salome. Salome is the sister of Jesus' mother, Mary. Who does that make her? Jesus' aunt, aunt, depending on southern, northern, whatever you're from. All right, this is Jesus' aunt. Sorry, that's where I'm going. Who does that make these two men that she's with? His cousins. James and John are Jesus' cousins. That's who's there. What do they want? They have honed in on what Jesus has said in chapter 19 and 20, but the idea of his kingdom and thrones, and what do they want? Position, prestige, power, influence, standing. That's what they want. And how do the other 10 take it? Oh, they're thrilled by this, aren't they? No, Matthew tells us they are indignant, they are upset, they are offended, they are probably suspicious. Suspicious that these two have tried to weasel in using their family ties to get these positions of power and influence that they themselves wanted. All is not right on the road to Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem. That's the context. The road to Jerusalem, right? Verses 17 and 19 again, Jesus' third passion prediction, knowing, foretelling what is to come, his crucifixion. And in that context, his disciples are squabbling and jockeying for position in that context. You see, there is a deep undertow all around us and within us that makes it vitally necessary that Jesus speaks strongly, reminding us, showing us to see that this path of service, this path of following him is a path of service, and it, it is absolutely incumbent that we see this stands in utter contrast to the rest of the world. It is completely natural to want respect. It's completely acceptable. It's okay. It's good. It's fine to want the honor of others around you, to be heard, to be thought well of, to do your best and to be your best. All those things are good and fine and natural, but you know, we know how fast that can go sour, how easily that can go sour. What Jesus is telling us clearly here is, you are not to live for 
the respect, the honor, the approval, the standing, the status in the eyes of others. That's all fine, but you dare not get cart before horse. Those, that's gravy. Those are gifts. If they come, it's fine. Don't you dare live for those things as you are so inclined to do, as we are so inclined to do. Not so with you. Jesus calls us to a path of service. That stands in utter contrast to the world. All right, well, that's the negative way of putting it. What's the positive way of putting it? Well, we see that here as well. And that's if we look at verses 26 and 27. So let's go there for just a moment. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. He's making clear that the path of greatness, the way to greatness, the status of greatness, is that of service. If you want to be first, be a slave. If you want to be great, be a servant. Now, this is seemingly foolish in our eyes. And it certainly wasn't, just you know, honest, this is foolish, naturally speaking, in our eyes. And it was certainly would have been, if you think in terms of, well, how did his hearers then hear this? Absolutely, they thought this was crazy, that this is foolish, this is just radical. I alluded to this earlier. In all seriousness, in terms of, you, you look at how, what people regarded as being virtuous at the time. Humility was not on the list of virtues. It was regarded as a vice. Nonsensical to approach life in this way. And Jesus, look what he's doing. He's flipping the roles between master and servant, master and slave. This was radical even to Jewish ears. But this is, the, this is his kingdom, the upside-down kingdom. Right? You've, we've heard this before if you've been in this study at any time at all, where the rich are regarded as poor, and the poor are regarded as rich, and the first are last, and the last are first. This is his upside-down kingdom. This is what he does. He comes and flips us inside out, and he flips everything around us upside down. This is Jesus' kingdom. It may be seeming, it's seemingly foolish to us, but it's actually deeply wise. Now think with me here. Our starters, this idea of our being called to, to follow one who, who serves in the way that Jesus does is actually according to our design specs. Okay, look at him. We are made, going back to Genesis 1, we are made in the image according to the likeness of a serving, stooping, condescending God. Look at Jesus. What are your design specs? Look at Jesus. We are made for this as part of the, the, the wisdom that we need to recognize in, in this. Something else, though, as well, and that has to do with the reality, not just of our design, but the reality of deception and how easily deceived we are into thinking that we need to live for chasing after power, chasing after influence, chasing after reputation and standing and, and, and whatever else in other people's eyes. 
But think with me, just intuitively, if you just stop and think. With power comes the necessity of being thrust into places of responsibility. Be careful what you ask for. With position and standing comes the obligation at times to make hard decisions. Be careful what you ask for. To be at the center of attention. Oh, you know what that is? To be just that. Be careful what you ask for. That's at least in the backdrop of what Jesus is saying here in terms of our design and the, the reality of the de- this deceptive appeal of influence and power, responsibility, standing, status, all these things. Jesus then speaks and tells us then, wherever you are, you are there to serve. Wherever you are, and whatever that means, you are there to serve because the mark and measure of greatness is that of service. Service, living for the sake, not of ourselves, but for others. Wherever you are, you are there to serve, whether it's work, whether it's school, whether it's the home, whether it's the church. And we should be clear, though, what we mean when we say you're there to serve, because there are certainly a lot of caricatures of what that actually is. Jesus by no means means, when he says you are called to serve others, by no means does he mean a servile attitude or to be stupid, or to be ignorant, or to be naive, or to be nice. Jesus is not calling you to be nice. Think of Jesus. Is he servile? Is he stupid? Is he ignorant? Is he naive? Is he nice? No. Loving, but perhaps not nice. To serve in this way demands a heart of strength, of deep, deep strength. It requires that the grid through which you assess things and the needs around us is filtered through an attitude of utter self-denial of utter self-denial for the sake of others. Of utter self-denial for the sake of others, beginning with your brothers and sisters in Christ. A heart of utter self-denial, an impulse, a path, walking, utter self-denial for the sake of others. This is the path of service. This is the path of service. This is the path that Jesus walked. If we indeed are his followers, that is the path he is calling us to walk on this path of service, living not for ourselves, but for the sake of others. Well, then that takes us to the last point. Where are we, by the way, in in this? Okay, so the first thing meaning, it stands in utter contrast to any and everything that we feel, think, see around us. The second thing being, it's, it's directed by the needs, not of ourselves, but for others, for the sake of others. But the third thing in terms of the power the impulse, the the force, the motivation behind this is it's all because of him. And this too needs to be said, and clearly so and wrestled with uh, together. So let me just go back. Let's look at verses 26 to 28. It shall not be so among you, but whoever 
would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's so much here, so much we could talk about. A sermon series could come out of just this one verse. But just drilling down on on the the, the main point of what he's uh, asking us to see, consider first his unique and finished work. He's clearly alluding to here when he speaks of the cup, the cup that he would and could alone drink. His once for all unique and finished work, the imagery that Jesus uses here, just just think with me, the Son of Man, okay, that's his favorite way of referring to himself, harkening back to Daniel's prophecies, the Son of Man came, implying pre-existence. He's God. The Son of Man came, came to be a ransom. And the word there is used for the purchasing of a slave or a prisoner of war out of imprisonment, of slavery. The Son of Man came as a ransom for many. That is to say, in the place of many, for the sake of many, in their stead, as a substitute for them, for them, for the Son of Man came as a ransom for many. And in all of that, we get a sense of necessity. He had to do this. We are completely unable in any way whatsoever to do anything to, to, to free ourselves in any way at all. Because why? We are, in, we are enslaved prisoners. So there's a sense of necessity to There's also a sense of necessity in terms of his own love and his own justice. If he is to be both, this is the only way. This is the only way his justice and his love can be served. And as a consequence of all of that, the slave, the prisoner, us, we're free. Oh, but not absolutely free because now we have a new master. He bought us at the great price of his own blood. Now, heard and embraced, such love changes us. Heard and embraced, such love changes us. Let me, if I may use this as an illustration. Lily Potter, the mother of Harry Potter. Okay, so first book in, the, in that series. Um, the evil Lord Dumbledore is trying to kill Harry Potter. There's this Voldemort-possessed villain, Professor Quirrell, if I remember correctly, who is trying, I mean, he's Voldemort's agent in all of this, and he wants to literally lay hold of Harry. He can't. Every time his hand touches Harry, he is... He is racked with this agonizing pain. Later, Harry is asking his mentor, Professor Dumbledore, why couldn't he touch him? Why couldn't Quirrell touch Harry? This is what Dumbledore says. Your mother died to save you. Love as powerful as your mother's for you leaves its own mark. Not a scar, no visible sign, but to have been loved so deeply will give us some protection forever. My point in just bringing this up is 
Jesus' love for us leaves a mark. It leaves a mark. And it demands a response. Heard, embraced, it marks us. It moves us. Thinking in terms of his unique and finished work, that cup that he drank marks us, moves us. But there's something else. Not not just that, but also the sense of his perpetual service. And by that, I I want you to think with me just for a moment about that other cup that Jesus mentions here, because there's two. Not just the one that he would and could alone drink, but the one that he says James and John are going to have to drink, right? Did you catch that back earlier? A, a, A cup of sharing in his suffering. Not that it saves by any stretch, but it is is the cup that we drink as his followers in his name for his sake because we are identified with him in this world and may be called upon in some way to drink. James, do you know what the cup meant for him? If you read the book of Acts, he was the first of the disciples to be martyred. He was beheaded. John was the last of them. Late first century, as a very, very old man, exiled to the island of Patmos. This is the cup. This is the cup. Or another way of thinking about this is not just sharing with his suffering, but walking, as as so many have said through the years, in the imitation of Christ. Jesus says this right here. He says there in the beginning of verse 28, even as, or just as, even as, just as I have, you must. As my followers, live in this way. Live in this way. Servants and slaves of all, all because of Jesus. Servants and slaves of all, all because of Jesus. All because of Jesus. Only because of Jesus. It's important to to note here, because the the service that we are to render unto him is only for him. Um, It is to be untainted by a desire for what we can get out of the service. Uh, It is to be untainted by a, 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 a chasing after a good feeling that we get on the other side of the service or a sense of fulfillment that we've been promised if we will carry out X, Y, or Z. Now, it has to be said because we can find ourselves falling into that, whether in a secular arena or a spiritual arena. Either one. We can be chasing after feelings or fulfillment. It's what psychologists refer to as a self-referential trap. Because ultimately, who are you serving if that's your motive? You. You are serving yourself for what you can get out of it. And Jesus is saying, that may, there, there may be benefits to come with this. Sure, maybe. But service rendered unto him must be only to him, through him, and for him. And as we serve in that, what we find is our hearts being changed slowly but surely, like 
kingdom, right? Upside down, inside out. We find ourselves growing in humility, slowly but surely, as we rely upon him. We find uh, ourselves becoming increasingly freed from worry as we are able to let things go and entrust them to him. We find ourselves experiencing that crazy, beautiful combination of, yet on the one hand, levity because we don't take ourselves so seriously, and at the same time, honesty because we're able to be self-critical and maybe even hear the criticism of others, all coming as a consequence of service rendered only to Jesus and the heart changes that take place in the as a consequence in the course of that. This is the path of service. It is unlike anything the world has to offer. It is unlike anything our hearts might otherwise chase after. But this is the path he has walked, the path of service, and he calls us to walk it ourselves. Again, it is a path that stands in utter contrast to the rest of the world, it is a path that is lived for the sake of others, and it is a path that is given over, lived out only for the sake of Jesus. I, I mentioned um, some 20th, 20th century, 21st century literature, uh, Harry Potter. Let me take you now to some Tolkien. Uh, ending with this, a scene from The Fellowship of the Ring, Lord of the Rings, Council of Elrond. I'm sure many of you, you know exactly where I'm going with this. The others, you're kind of like, I don't even know who Tolkien is. It's okay. We love you. Um, so the, in the, at the Council of Elrond, here's the idea. The leaders of the world are gathered there, assembled there in that moment to try and discern what to do, how to dispose of, how to destroy what's referred to as the ring of power. And they, they need to do this before the dark lord Sauron lays hold of it himself. Now, the, the fate, the future of the entire world hinges on this decision. Elrond steps forward as sort of the leader. He says, this ring was made in the fires of Mount Doom. Only there can it be unmade. It must be taken deep into Mordor and cast back into the fiery chasm from which it came. One of you must do this. Then Boromir steps up. And this, of course, is the famous line that's been gift and everything else till the cows come home. But Boromir cannot see for a moment how this is possible and stands absolutely against this plan. And this is what he says. One does not simply walk into Mordor. Its black gates are guarded by more than just orcs. There is evil there that does not sleep, and the great eye is ever watchful. It is a barren wasteland riddled with fire and ash and dust, not with 10,000 men. Could you do this? It is folly. The, the council, that doesn't help. That's gas on the fire. The council erupts in protests. People are standing up, pointing at one another, yelling at each other, accusing each other. It's just bedlam, craziness. They're in the council. And then this quiet voice speaks up. Frodo the hobbit, the smallest and weakest of them all, stands up and declares, I will take it. I will take it. I will take the ring to Mordor. But I do not know the way. And that shocks all the mighty ones assembled there, silences them all, moves them to support this plan, this mission. They're informing the fellowship of the ring. 
It's a compelling moment in the story. It's a compelling moment for the viewer, if it's the film, or for the reader. Why? Why? It's not just because of the brilliant writing. It's not just because of the soaring music, the soundtrack, and the cinematography. It's because what's being tapped in there, in that moment, the, the, the viewer or the reader knows instinctively it's true. There's something deep and profound at what has just happened in this moment, compelling our hearts, drawn to it. It's, it's in many ways what Jesus is speaking of here. It's the very thing that we are made for, service. And so our hearts are drawn to this little hobbit standing up and saying, I will go. Our hearts are drawn to that because it's what we're made to do. And Jesus promises it's what you're being remade to do, to follow me. The path of service, following him. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, you, the Son of Man, coming not to be served, but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for us? How would you help us here? How would you help us see what you've done? This path that you have walked, this path that you have put us on. Oh, would you help us to see the direction that we are to be walking in and the sole motivation for that walking of that path. Oh, would you help us to be honest with the struggle we have here and the different areas of our lives in which we do struggle here. Oh, would you have mercy. Oh, would you work these things into our hearts and change us from deep, deep within. We pray in your name.